This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they have created a limited edition Everyday Hero shirt. There are only 2,000 of them available, and 100% of the proceeds are going to go to charity, and on top of that, for every purchase, they're going to donate an N95 mask to first responders in New York City, which is certainly one of the hardest hit areas in America during this crisis. And on top of that, as always, they still are offering the 15 percent discount to all listeners of Behind the Shield using the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And I just want to go over some of the products that I've featured in the past that I think are incredible. So you have the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great, comfortable alternative to the heavy, cumbersome duty boot. You have the uniforms, some of which I wore over a decade ago in Anaheim Fire, which I think are some of the most comfortable and come in a variety of fits to make sure they actually do fit the responder. The AMP backpack, which I've used from hiking to loading with plates on a cruise ship to exercise in, to traveling across the world when I see family and do interviews. And then more recently, the shorts and the jeans are incredibly comfortable. I've been using them as well and some of the flashlights. So there are so many things that will add value to your work life and your home life in their catalog of products. So just to reiterate again, go to 511 Tactical, that's 511-T-A-C-T-I-C-A-L.com. Use the code SHIELD15, save 15% and make a difference in your community. Welcome to episode 319 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Eddie Cohn. Now, Eddie is a retired special operations police officer from the UK and also a professor in jiu-jitsu. So a very, very unique perspective on not only his life story, which we discuss in detail, but also some of the things that have been going on recently. He has uh, the law enforcement background, but from a different nation looking across the Atlantic and also the combative side as well. So before we get to that conversation, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. The five-star ratings really are helping increase the visibility of this podcast to the people that are looking for it. And as I always say, this is a free library of some of the greatest minds on planet Earth. And all I ask you, the audience, to do is help share. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Eddie Cohn. Enjoy. So, Eddie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. My pleasure, James. Good to be here. Where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Today I'm in uh, rainy old London, my hometown. Beautiful. One that I know well. Um, I would love to start at the very beginning. I know you've got a very interesting story, so I really want to start at the genesis. So tell me about your family unit, um, You know what your mother and dad did and how many, how many siblings you had. Mm. So um, my father is from Cuba and my mother is from the UK. Um, they met, um, were together a while. I was conceived um, and then I was raised in, in this place, London. Um, growing up, I, I grew up in, in the east end of London. I have uh, one sister and a brother. Um, and 
we grew up in the East End. Uh, during the 70s and all the way to present, although my time has been spent in various other countries around the world, the majority of my time has been in the UK. Um, the family unit that I come from was a typical kind of East End family where um, work was very scarce for, for, for my parents, uh, which in turn meant money was scarce. And we were living on, on a breadline, which most other people uh, of my, my era were doing. Um, but we, we had a happy unit. The unit was um, a very nice family unit. Uh, and one day, my mother and father decided it would be a good idea to, to separate and, and go, go their separate ways. So um, fast forward a few years and uh, being, in, being in hardship, etc. Um, my mother found a new partner who wormed his way into our family, if you like. Um, once his feet were under the table, everything changed. Every, everything changed. He went from the nice, nice guy to quite uh, an aggressive drunk, let's say. Um, and some of the stuff that happened during my, my life at home, I can give you a couple of examples where um, I faced physical violence um, almost on a daily basis from him. Um, he obviously didn't appreciate the children were from another father and we weren't his children so he he had his own ideas of, of how he should rule the roost um and listen we we were kids we we weren't um we were just kids you know we we're not we don't know the difference between good and bad and all the rest of it we just being kids and you know the more he he the the more he put his feet under the table the more the more the beatings became apparent. Uh, there was one incident when um, I was uh, beaten so bad by him that my arm was broken um, and they didn't take me to hospital because of the social services would be involved and all the rest of it. And uh, my arm was broken for two weeks. Um, I went to school with this arm and stayed at home with the arm. It was, it was, a, it was a painful situation. After two weeks, they decided that I should go to the A&E uh, accident and emergency room. We went there. They said my arm had been broken. I had to lie and say that I'd fallen out of a tree, um, at which point my arm was broken and reset. Um, so that, that's one incident. There, there are many other incidents. I could give you multiple uh, incidents. Um, so that's the kind of family life we came from. We didn't have much family um, I had a grandmother who I ended up spending a lot of time with um, when I was around from about nine onwards. And then I was uh, in and out of children's uh, accommodation, children's homes, uh, foster parents, you name it. I kind of went went through that system um, and came and it kind of spat me out the other end uh, because when you reach 18, uh, you're, they, they set you up with a kind of bed sit property a bed sit is like a, a one room which has a bed and a kitchen all in one room and they kind of spit you out and you're, you're left to fend fend for yourself so that's kind of an overview james of of, of my background how how old were you when you got the broken arm uh i think it was well i actually know it was around 10 years old i think 10 years old um so so listen 
that's that's not a violin story that isn't like get the violins out and do this and that because I learned much later in my life some very powerful lessons in regards to that there was a lot of a lot of self-blame there was a lot of um you know what what had I you know I must have been really bad for that to happen and you, you know there was all this sort of stuff but then as you go through life you kind of realize that hey it could have been worse had had things had panned out a different way maybe I wouldn't be here today James from from that age you know from that young age um and and I speak to my sister about this and she 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 was so young at the time she doesn't remember half of what happened um you know I was limited to to food in the house what I was allowed to eat um I was limited to um you know time out time in the school I was I was almost like a slave at home. I had to cook, clean and, and go to school and then come back and take care of these these adults, you know, these people that we would look up to. Um, so that that was kind of the, the basic background of where I'm from. Right. Well, it's, it's crazy how many men and women I've had on the show that have ended up in fire, police, military, you know, with these associated professions that have mm. had this abuse as children, whether it's physical abuse, domestic abuse, you know, sexual abuse, um, right. being around drugs, alcohol. And, you know, it's amazing how many of those that are, like you said, that are able to overcome those horrendous circumstances, if they don't, you know, destroy them and send them down a, a destructive path that they then choose these protector careers, these protector professions, you know, without, yeah. without even realizing it subconsciously so they can stop what happening to them happening to someone else. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think there is a lot of truth in that, that you do find, there's an old saying, you know, that a, a lot of police officers were bullied at school. And um, contrary to what people say, I think, I think there's, a, there's a much deeper rooted... Um, psychological thing behind that that maybe that is true but one thing i always stood for in the met which we'll get to was was i was anti-bully i was anti all of that stuff um and i was very honed into um the signs and symptoms of child abuse and neglect and and, and that that kind of thing um so so picking up from from where that where the, where i left off with the family um there was, I used to run away from home because I was terrified to be, be in that place. You know, um, an example I can give you is they, they would go out and get drunk. And one time, me and my brother, they, we were left to our own devices. I was uh, nine. He, no, sorry, I was 10. He was eight um, and, or, or seven, I don't remember. But, but we climbed up on an old glass unit that they had to, to get a ball down. And the thing fell over and all the glass broke in the, in the house. And we knew we were going to get it when, when they came back. So... Um, the next time they went out, they tied me to a radiator with curtain um, curtain coil. You know, you know what I'm talking about? That that old curtain white, what they used to hang um, neck curtains with. Yeah. With yeah. A yeah. Yep. So they tied me to a, a radiator with that and left. And they were out a little while. Well, when they were out, the radiator came on. The heating in the house came on. So the coil heated up. Um, and I still have the scar around my ankle from where that thing burned into me. Oh my God. Um, so, so, you know, I kind of went through that, that era of time. And then by the grace of God, you know, my neighbors or our neighbors reported us to the social services. Um, we would go months on end without being able to shower or without being able to bath. 
we wasn't allowed to put lights on in the house. We wasn't allowed to uh, take any food out of the fridge. We was we were given stuff. We were given leftovers of food, you know. So all sorts of neglect going on. And then I also witnessed the beating of 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 my mother by my stepfather. You know, I, I witnessed all of this stuff, um, and even intervened in in some some point. Even though, you know, the the psychology behind it. I can't work out, but even though when he would turn on her, we would intervene, she would never intervene when he would turn on us. Um, so that was that was very odd for me. That was a very odd time. And then um, social services got involved, and one day uh, the front door got kicked in, and um, we were taken into care. We were taken into care, um, which for American listeners would be this would be like, I'm guessing, James, would it be like, we call them children's homes here. I don't know what they call them in, in the US, um, but it would be like where they where they take children that lose their parents or that have been abused and they place them in a, a place of safety. Yeah, yeah, normally right into the, the foster system, you know, foster yeah, home or, so, or group so, home. Right, group home, right. So we entered the system um, and somehow three months after we were returned back home, there was a big thing back then about um, kids not being away from their parents, uh, that they wanted to keep families together and, and all the rest of that stuff. Um, so we we were bloody returned back into the lion's den, um, you know, a few months after. Then things got really bad for me and I, uh, they threw me out of the house. They threw me out of the house and I didn't want to go back into children's homes. So I was, at that time, I was 12 going on 13. And I, I lived on the streets of London, James, if you could believe that, 13 years old. That's the same age as my son. Yeah, exactly. So thir- imagine that, 13 years old. And this isn't, oh, poor old me, you know, like I said, this is, this will give you an indication of what makes me tick upstairs and give you an idea of why I operate the way I operate. Um, so at 13 years old, I was thrown out onto the street in nothing more than the clothes that I had. And I can remember it quite clearly. The snow was on the ground. It was it was quite cold, cold month. It was uh, coming up to Christmas. So it was around December. Um, and I literally spent about six months living in a park under a bench um, with carpet and and um, what do you call it? Cardboard boxes. And at 13 years old, you know, um, I would frequent the rear of restaurants and eat out of the dustbins. Um, I would sleep in, in abandoned buildings. I would find all these in dustbin chutes, you name it, everything to stay out of the system. Um, and it was only the fact that the school reported me as uh, not as a non-attendant that it, it, it became heightened. Um, and during that time, I had found in these um, what do you call it, uh, empty buildings and, and, and places where I'd, I'd sleep. We had a big problem, and you may remember this, back then in the 80s and 90s with um, glue sniffing. Yes. They'd place the glue into a, a cling film bag, and they would inhale that, and you'd see them walking around the streets like zombies. Um, that, that, would, that would be the first recollect, recollection of, of drug abuse for me. The other thing that was happening at the time was the light of fuel inhalation. Uh, do, you, do you remember that at all? I remember all this. Yeah, I remember even even like Grange Hill doing episode, episodes about it. Right, right. So, so that's the era I'm talking about. So, 
so I'd meet this group of people and hang out with them and they were into glue sniffing and, and this lighter fuel inhalation. They would go out and commit all kinds of offenses, um, breaking into cars, breaking into houses. Um, and that was survival. They were desperate people trapped in desperate times. And although I was in that scenario, I was in that environment, I was with these people, I never ever fell foul of, of that. I never fell foul of the glue and I never fell foul of the um, lighter fuel inhalation. I actually never fell foul of breaking into people's houses or robbing from cars. Although I did rob from shops as a youngster. I did run past and grab a handful of apples or a handful of food. Um, and I kind of justified that to myself because I was hungry and it wasn't really harming anyone um, apart from me stealing a few apples or, or whatever I could get my hand on at the time. Um, and and then, I, then I got um, picked up on by the police, the police caught me and um, I was then placed in, a, in, in children's homes uh, across London, some a little further out as, as my life progressed. Um, I ended up in a children's home uh, sharing a room with, a, with another uh, child who was in the children's home and I kept, we called it over the wall, I kept going over the wall and one time uh, they called me in and they put me in this place which was like a prison it was a 23 hour lockup it wasn't prison it was a children's home you'd be out, allowed out for an hour within the grounds and then they'd lock you back up again um, and and that's where i began to realize and look at life you know a very very through very very different glasses when i was um the closest person in my life was my grandmother and she passed away when i was 13 and i'd spent a few years with her uh, out of the house living with her and then when she passed away that's when everything went to kind of everything went up a creek with no paddle um, and then from 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 then on it was uh, it was me myself and I in the big wide world learning to, uh, to survive now with your, your journey through the foster system because I mean I've heard you know horror stories and I've heard amazing amazing you know people that have come out and, and flourished afterwards with some amazing families that, that they live with what was mm. your specific journey like my journey in there was one of of mixed there was some good people in there i can, I can remember some of the, there was a guy in there called Tarek who was one of the the social care workers there was a guy in there called lambert um and those were incredible influences on my life they were um they would sit me down and talk to me and an, an incident happened. I used to be um, very aggressive as a youngster because it was um, more than a self-defense mechanism. It was a, a self-preservation mechanism. He who is the most aggressive will survive. People would leave you alone. Um, so I was very quick to use use the uh, the aptitudes that I had, that, the fists and the feet, very quick to, to, to go, go with that. But I, um, I can remember some great times. I can remember some bad times. One of the the negative times I remember was I shared a room with a young fellow who um, he would come in and, and it would go dark in the room and this this kid would be terrified to leave the room and um, he would urinate in the corner of the room because he was so terrified of the dark um, he was slightly younger than me um, and you know all kind of, he'd have night terrors not even nightmares that he would have night terrors and we became friends over a period of time. He was a, a guy who would go over the wall as well. And one one night in particular, he went with his stepfather out 
he came back and he was in tears and he said, listen, he's, he's done it to me again. And I said to him, done what? And he said, you know, he's, he's molested me again. And I didn't realize there was sexual abuse going on. Um, and I took that very personally to the point that the next time the guy showed up, I literally had to put him straight, you know, physically. And I was a young, young man at the time. I was like a young kid. I was 15, 16. And then it all came out and, and the police kind of got hold of it and started to deal with that scenario. And that was a negative time that I had in there. And one of the posit most positive times was when I was going off, off the wall, that these guys would take me and, and they were, I can't remember everyone who was in there. It, the place was called Hanalong House. I'm not sure if it still exists. Um, I'm not sure if, it, if it's there anymore. It was many, many years ago. It was in a place called Wapping in East London. That was one of the first places I was in. Um, and then uh, the, the positive stuff was they would take us out. They would do things with us. It was almost like having surrogate parents until the fostering came along. When the fostering came along, that was crazy. I, I didn't want foster parents and I rejected that at every opportunity. I, um, I would abscond, I would run away, I would cause them all sorts of problems and eventually they just kept me in there. Uh, in the, in the children's homes until I was uh, adult enough to be spat out of the system and, and placed into um, into normality, if you like. Yeah, that's so so awful to hear. You know what what your friend went through, and again, that's something that is way more prominent than than people realise. You know, and and the the abuse that's happening to our children, um, you know, ongoing is is definitely an elephant in the room something that's kept in the shadows and i think that's something that really needs to be pulled out because you and i see it you know we respond yeah. you lived it and i and i uh i saw it as a medic and you know that's that there's so many areas i mean right now we're in this this crazy time where you know this this unrest is happening because of that awful murder but um mm. you know the the sad thing is there's always issues have been going on for for decades and decades and decades that that aren't getting any attention yeah, for sure. We we kind of get lost and and in, in the here and now. Yeah. Uh, you know, then these things. You're right. These things are, are decades in the making sometimes. Now, what about um, sports when you were school age? Like, what were some of the things that you liked to do back then? I've always been into um, to contact sports, uh, James. I started. Um, I've never liked soccer. Not a soccer fan. Not a football fan. Uh, I don't mind rugby. I can't stand those um, golf and cricket, and they're not my kind of thing. And darts, I'm I'm kind of into the rugby, the judo, the karate. When I was younger, uh, the kickboxing, those were the kind of things that attracted to me. You know, they they kind of I found them, I found like-minded people. I found they were hard workers. I found they wasn't afraid to get into the knit and the grit of it. Um, and I found myself most comfortable in the spit and sawdust gyms, not in these kind of plush David Lloyd gyms, you know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the spit and sawdust gyms is is where real men uh, are made. You know, there are no posers in there. You will not find a poser in a <laughs> in a spit and sawdust gym. And and the guys that you do find in there, you find they've been through the mill, and they know a little bit about life, if that makes sense to you. Oh, it does completely. I I fought in um, University of North London, and the the no one ball, guy, yeah. the one guy that uh, used to teach us, his name was Rocky. He's a black guy. I think that was a nickname because I I believe his last name was actually Balboa, but this guy was. <laughs> I mean, he must have been I don't know, maybe one fifty, because he was about probably about five six. But 
just the most shredded human being you will ever see in your entire life and such a nice bloke but yeah i mean there was there were no holes sparred you know when you were training with them i mean it was it was awful <laughs> you know you got you got the shit kicked out of you but that was that was it like there's there's no toning down combat sports like you said absolutely you don't want to be going full contact the whole time you know we're learning that a lot more now but you know you can you can prance around a football pitch you can listen we see these footballers fall over they're getting paid ridiculous <laughs> they get touched they fall over for sixty thousand pounds. and fair play to them you know if that's if that's your caper you know but are you a footballer or are you an actor you know um and and i'm sure in the sports i'm involved in and many other people around the world you know, I fought in, in MMA and jiu-jitsu, and those are the real deal. You know, those are not, you know, those are not um, soft sports. You know, those, you touch, you get touched with a four-ounce gloves in, in those things or an elbow, and you know about it, you know. They're game changers. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the football is a, a great game, but yeah, when, when you're talking about toughness, you know, basketball, football are not the sports to, to really, you know, see what you're made of. But the combat it's sports right. are definitely that. You'll, you'll know if, you know, if you're right. if you're good. I mean, I was like absolute middle of the road. I could I could take a beat in in, in the gym, but I was never going to compete. You know, I wasn't I wasn't cut from that cloth. So I was kind of halfway. But there's a lot yeah. of people that don't even walk through the doors because they know that they, exactly, yeah. they're, they're too scared. So the funny thing with that, James, is. I was saying it's all the gear, no idea. And I see these people walking around with, um, you know, UFC t-shirts and this and that. And I look at them and I think, man, that's shameful. I get that you're a fan and, and all the rest of it. But we're, I'm in a queue sometimes and I hear people telling other people they're, they're UFC fighters and that, it makes me laugh. Um, you know, it, and like you said, it's walking through the door is one thing, you know, actually doing the training is the other. Yeah. Yeah, and I've been a punch bag for some amazing fighters. Oh, me too. You know, me but too. <laughs> I could never ever do what they do. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, back to your your journey. You mentioned that you know prior to entering law enforcement that you'd had a brush with the law. So tell me about the firearms charge. Yeah. So um, I stupidly um, young, impressionable, and I'm not saying that is the. It's not a cop out. Um, I always found myself wanting to fit in um, with the people around me. Um, I always wanted to be known as the toughest guy in the neighborhood. I wanted to be known as the problem solver. I wanted to be known as that guy that if you messed around with me, that would be a wrap for you. Um, and one day an incident happened. I was with, with some people, an incident happened. Um, the weapon that was involved was left in the vehicle. Uh, in my vehicle, the vehicle, my vehicle was seen leaving the scene. If you can imagine that four of us go out for beers, you bring a friend who is not known to me at all. An incident happens, which I'm not aware of. And suddenly police come through my door and arrest me for an offense. And not any of remember up to that point, I never had a brush with the law as a kid, of course, from running away and all the rest of it, but never a serious brush with the law. And suddenly I'm in, I find myself in a cell, in an interview room, being looked at on a charge of, um, of murder. The big one, you know? Um, and I had no idea what was going on. And that, you know, kept my mouth shut, did 
what we're told to do as the code of the street dictates, don't snitch, da 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 da, da. found myself um, sitting in a remand center in a place called Pentonville. I don't know if you've heard of that prison. Uh, yeah, P Pentonville uh, prison on remand um, for close to six months, James. Can you imagine watching my life go down the pan at, what was I, 18? Watching my life just drip down the pan for something that I sincerely had no involvement with. Now, don't get it wrong. If you go to prison today and ask everyone, why are you here? That everyone in there is innocent. They'll all tell you they're innocent or they've been fitted up or all the rest of it. And so maybe some have. I don't know. But for me, it was nothing to do with me. And thank God I had some friends who were involved in that scenario who went and spoke to that individual. And let's just say that he saw the, the error of his ways and, and he came and, and uh, did the right thing. So they preached we, some got Bible verses to him? Is that what you're saying? Listen, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea, but all I know is um, one day I was in there looking at, um, at, at the long life, at the long stretch, and then the next uh, six months later, a solicitor shows up and says, you've been set free, and then four months after that, I was NFA, no further action. Um, so I've seen that, that life, and I'm not a tough guy, James. I'm not a badass. I'm not a, a street kid. I'm not cut from that cloth. Um, you know, I'm a businessman, I'm a pillar in the society, in the community, I'm a father, um, you know, that's where I'm at. And that's, for me to be anything else would be fake and would be, would, would be, uh, I would be dishonoring myself and embarrassing myself. Um, but I have had interactions through growing up and living a certain life and coming out of a certain environment uh, with that style of living. And that isn't for me. It wasn't for me, you know. So how did that factor in when you were like deeper in your, your career, um, having seen what could have been one of these horrendous, um, you know, wrongful convictions um, with, with your actual diligence in investigation when it came to these crimes to make sure that you didn't put someone in the same position that you were in yourself? Yeah, I mean... Later in my career, I, I would always apply that. That was always a good um, start point for me. Um, I never presumed anyone was guilty of anything. I never assumed anyone was guilty. Uh, the only people that were arrested by me was on substantial evidence. Um, and that was all the way from being just a PC, a 999 response officer, all the way up until I was in the, um, in the specialist operations of, of, of the police, you know. So, um, I would always apply that as my benchmark, as a standpoint, because we can apply the rules, we can apply um, the guidelines, but in between that, we also have to apply um, experience, life experience. What does life experience tell me? You know, we have to apply that, and that has to be working, it has to be practical. You know, we always have to be, when I was in that, that role of work, I believe completely in transparency, honesty, integrity, and transparency. Um, and I still do till today. I still believe that that is the best way to operate. That is where, you know, no one's going to leap out the shadows and no one's going to accuse you of nothing because you're transparent. You know, it's it's all done with the right intention and, and nothing's ever done any. I've never, ever had anything come back to me in that way. Don't, don't get, get it wrong. I've had complaints made against me, but I've never had 
I've, I've never had to kind of falsify information or, or, or make something up or jump to an assumption about someone. Yeah, well, your your story highlights, and I think what's beautiful is there's you in law enforcement in the same town in, in London. Um, Sabrina, Ka- Ka- excuse me, Sabrina Cohen-Hatton was also homeless. She ended up becoming one of the highest chiefs in the British fire service. There you are, you know, one of the elite um, operators in, in the police force. So a huge kind of lesson learned of this is that there are children in the UK, in America, all over the, the world, whose environment is setting them up for failure. And then if you treat that person as a bum, as, as a junkie, as a hooker, as a stripper, you know, all these labels that we like to put on people so we feel better about ourselves, it completely disregards that human being. And there you have a woman that becomes one of the highest members of, of the fire service, a man who is one of the trusted members of the, the British police that has, you know, responds to some of the worst events. So, you know, th- th- there needs to be so much more focus on healing these environments for our children and then forgiving mistakes. Not, you know, I mean, there's got to be a consequence, but not letting, you know, an addiction or, you know, a, 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 an arrest stop them from a path of becoming the next fire chief, the next member of a you know, special operations team. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's such a strange chain of events because when I arrested people, they would say, oh, you don't know what it's like. You would have no idea. And I would sometimes find myself trying to justify that why I had an idea or, or, or why I know what they're going through or why I can sympathize or empathize with them. But ultimately... I didn't have to do that and I stopped doing that towards the end and I, I would just give solid advice and I would give honest advice and we, we're so quick. I think the blame cycle is so vicious and so quick and so easy for us to go, I'm a product of my environment. Listen, I, where I'm at now in my life, I could not imagine, uh, James, where I'm at now with my life and, and how together it is and how... I'm getting there, you know, and how every day is uh, is a blessing, and 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 each day requires more hard work. I di- I haven't woken up today the same person I was yesterday, you know. I'm constantly reinventing myself and those around me, and empowering those around me. And I think that is such a a cheap and easy way out. Oh, I'm a product of my environment. You have no idea what it's like. Well, you have no idea who I am or where I've come from. Um, and I think that in itself speaks volumes, you know, it's so easy to, to blame. It's so easy to point the finger. It's so easy because I'm born in a certain way, in a certain area on the breadline of poverty, that this is my life and I'm, I have to go a certain route. No, you don't, you know. Diplomas and certificates, they don't have a date on them, James. I don't know if you know that. They don't have a, a date of when you pass. You can take four years to pass that. It doesn't have a date, but you, it's achievable. You know, um, and I think people just need to apply themselves more rather than victim mentality and blame mentality, as harsh as that sounds. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true. And I think that's the problem is people always argue one or the other. And reality is both. Like if you're if you as society are, are selling a narrative like, well, you're a junkie. And then we have drug policy where, you know, you have the audacity to be abused as a child, find yourself, you know, sniffing glue. Uh, shooting up heroin whatever it is and you get arrested now you have a a criminal record well that's creating an environment for you not to be able to 
you know sort your life out you know what i mean <laughs> but then like you said there's also this selling of the poor me victim like you said get the violin out which is the other side and reality is the individual if they're given an environment where they can see that they are going to be able to pull themselves out that's when the ownership factors in as well but you know there there we you and i have both seen there are environments where a lot of people grow up where some do come out but the chances of them coming out are a lot less than you know a a middle class suburban area where let's say for example maybe both parents are still together and you know are at home and not abusing their children and helping them with their homework you know that there's a better chance that those people are gonna are gonna find themselves on the right of two paths so I think that both conversations need to have, be had simultaneously. There has to be ownership, there has to be self-belief, and they have to create an environment that will enable people to pull themselves out of these dark places. Yeah, for, for sure. What you're saying is is absolutely, you know, absolutely right. Um, you know, just because I'm the same DNA as my parents doesn't mean I have to be like them. Like, I wouldn't, there's no way I would uh, do that to my children. And, and this is the other blame cycle when you hear about pedophiles and I've arrested a few of those and interviewed a few of those too you can imagine in the time I've served um, and their whole thing was it happened to me and I knew no different but we all have this thing in life called a choice we know that's wrong we we're adults we know the difference between right or wrong when you make that choice to go down that path when you exhaust every other apparent you know opportunity or every other apparent means you know it goes beyond you didn't have a choice we all have that choice we all have the same 24 hours in the day we all have the same we all breathe the same oxygen you know we it's it's crazy to me james that whole scenario to me is is non-existent and people can potentially sit back and go oh you're okay look at what 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 you've achieved and what you're doing yeah but if you'd have walked my life back then oprah summed it up well she said walk with me now fly with me later and and you know that's there could never be a, a truer saying those that walked with me now i'm still friends with those people we i still motivate and encourage and support what they do every single day just like they do to me and and some of those people are celebrities some of those people are um you know in some of the highest earning brackets that i know and then i have other friends that are not but they don't they don't blame you know they make their own choices in life and and that's what it comes down to what do you choose to do yeah absolutely well getting on with the kind of like timeline what came first your entry into law enforcement or your discovery of jiu-jitsu the discovery of jiu-jitsu came first well let's start with that then (laughs) yeah the the discovery of jiu-jitsu was amazing for me in uh in 1991 i heard about jiu-jitsu i came from a thai boxing background um and i was pretty good at it you know i had a few scraps in the ring uh, a few scraps out of the ring so i knew the effectiveness of, of what it was and then on a trip uh, to brazil um to a training camp i began to hear about this family called the gracie family um i assumed it was spelled gray like the color and sea like the ocean like like the you know like the mediterranean sea um in brazil they were they were legends you know we were taken out to brazil friends of mine were competing and then we had some downtime so i went and visited 
this academy in uh, in Botafogo in Rio, in Brazil. Um, and when I went in there, I was immediately shocked at how small most of the people inside the academy were. I had no idea the giants that were in that academy. I had no idea the you know who they who they were. Um, and I, I got to training with them for five days, I, th I believe it was five days, and I was baptized. Imagine someone saying to you, James, listen, attack me however you want, with whatever you want, do whatever you like, and then we're going to take you down. All they did was take me down and submit me, made me say uncle, made me tap. And they explained that to me. What you have to do is tap. And uh, each time, the same thing over and over, took me down, jumped on my back, chugged me out. And they did it with, with a smile on their face. <laughs> I'd never been uh, belittled or manhandled like that in my whole life. I felt like a child. And I was very fit and very athletic back then. Um, fast forward a few years, I hung up the, the tie boxing gloves and, uh, and committed and dedicated my life completely to the art of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, um, which I still practice now. Um, that, that was kind of an introduction into it. The world heard about the Gracie family in 1993. Um, after the videos were released, the VHS videos were released of Hoist Gracie taking on all sorts of monsters in a no rules fight inside a cage, which was actually an octagon uh, in the UFC, the very first UFC, which was banned in 50 states, I believe. Um, and so they took it out to, I think it was uh, Colorado or somewhere like that. Um, and, and they made it happen. And it was a blood sport. It was such a spectacle that I can remember watching the first UFC at the first opening fight. I saw, I think his name was David Tau or David Tau, got his teeth kicked out in the first opening fight. Imagine that. We're watching him, boom, his teeth get kicked out in the first round, you know, in the first opening fight. No rules, no rounds, no gloves, no time limit. And that's what drew me to it, you know, that's what kind of drew me towards it. And then I just kept going back. I just kept finding myself going back and training with the legends that we have in, in the industry today, these icons, you know. And I will say that that jujitsu alone has saved me more times in frontline duties than anything that the Metropolitan Police ever taught me. Yeah, I think we're learning that more and more. I mean, sadly, the, the video, you know, the, and it's funny, the more, the more discussion I see about that video with George Floyd and, um, you know, it, the whole scene is just so strange. But, I mean, that's what everyone from jiu-jitsu background is coming out and saying, like, well, why the hell was that even a thing? Like, how was that a tactic? How, you know, what, what was the end goal of kneeling on someone for eight minutes? But I had Tim Kennedy. Um, he came to Ocala. I've trained with him for a couple of days. Amazing guy. Tim's an incredible human being. He is. But but that's one of his goals is, is to, to educate law enforcement, you know, and, and that should be an absolute inbred element of all you know law enforcement communities is, is jujitsu because as you said hoist who was on the show as well um you know is, is not much bigger than me and he was able to dominate every single person that stood in front of him so if that worked you know, in the cage and it's submission so you're not pounding someone to death then mm. i and that was in 1993 why in 2020 have so many agencies still not 
learned the lesson. We're so forward in technology when it comes to um, infiltrating, detecting, and bringing those to justice, James. But we're so backwards in the methods we bring them in at. You know, we're so backwards in the in the methods of control and restraint. We're so backwards in in that side. We're so backwards in resorting from verbal communication as a initial point of contact that we're so afraid of each other as humans and as each other and we're so afraid of people that don't look like us or resemble us that we resort to extreme violence initially through fear because it all results back to fear everything that happens like that is from a, a place of fear yeah absolutely and i think that the way you eliminate fear is through training you know so through education right yeah understand it exactly so if you know that you can put your hands on someone and with your training with your strength training your fitness your your martial arts get them to a point where they're not a danger to themselves or anyone else anymore without having to pull you know a sidearm then that fear is going to be greatly diminished you know but if you haven't trained and you know you're basically uh, out muscled by whoever you're looking at now your options are going to go back to that that one one option which is all right i'm going to have to shoot this person the, the the big thing on that subject is it was a murder. You know, there is no doubt in my mind. Um, but, you know, if I arrested someone and there were ex people around that were, I believe, to be involved, then they would be arrested for accessory to murder too. This, we haven't seen that happen yet um, in the US. They, they're saying they're going to bring some charges, but people don't know what charges. The other strange thing is, it's so normal to us now, James. Have you not noticed how the normality of that? Yeah, it's horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. It, it is. It's because we've become desensitized to that whole thing. Um, that a man was murdered right in front of us. And granted, there are marches and and protests going on. And and listen, I'm all for that. Okay, I'm all for that. I I posted something on my Instagram which was talking about law enforcement in particular if you disagree with if, if you agree with that with what happened then shame on you. you you're not worth the shield or the oath that you took in office you know that's not you're, you're not worth that and you should not be a police officer um and i wasn't doing it to be fashionable i wasn't doing it to gain likes or for people to to like my social media because i couldn't give two hoots about that but when we're desensitized to a situation that a, a man gets murdered on the street in full view on camera and people around did nothing, we are all to blame for that. Absolutely. You know, we can't just and, – and, and there's so much negativity towards the police at the moment. And listen, I'm pro-law enforcement. I'm pro-first responder. You know, um, But not all law enforcement officers – kill and hate people you know no very all, very very few not, not all black uh people african americans or black people in the uk are street robbers muggers and, and thugs you know not all white people um are crackheads and and in the uk and, and rob houses or burn crosses <laughs> right Ex exactly so we can't tarnish everyone with the same that that's almost on the reverse racism that's like if you're saying all cops are like this 
and then you you don't expect cops to say well all people are like you that's a battle that you cannot win we have to start education you know we have to start at listening and we have to start at learning and once we start at that point and we have to come from a place of love james and i know that sounds crazy especially from where i'm from you know from from the life i've had but it all starts with love and it has to end with love and and, and like I, I said to you before america unfortunately within its dna the way it was built was on bloodshed you know look at the red indians you know look at before that you know and when it's built into the dna of, of, of bloodshed and, and struggle and all the rest of it you're unfortunately going to have a, a melting pot where code one is you know arm yourself and use them arms in any means necessary you know and it, it's a crazy crazy scenario we could we could end up running into a serious race war here you know yeah well, well this morning i woke up and and the awful news last night there was a retired police captain david dorn who was murdered on the street protecting his friend's business he was shot and that wow. was on live stream on facebook again so another murder this time of a black retired law enforcement officer by who knows i don't know who pulled the trigger but by the rioters collectively but, you know but can so you see the agenda here can you see the narrative that's being kicked off here exactly and then what's being lost is the actual thing and i and i've posted right. multiple times exact same thing as you this is you know hate knows no race no or creed color. no yeah, it's nothing. just hate so yeah. there's no difference between whoever took that poor man's life than the shit bag that took George George Floyd. George yeah. Floyd, exactly. So, you know, that's that's the thing is it's not about labeling people, it's about the underlying hatred. And that can be from a political leader, it can be from the leader of a church, from you know, the the far left, the far right, whatever it is. But we've got to understand that the the, the war is against hatred. And like you said, the, the tool that we have is kindness and compassion and love. For sure. For sure. And and it all starts there. And, and I, I use this analogy a lot. When we're born into the world, we know nothing but love. We look at the world in amazement and in, in wonderment. And we look up and, and kids are the most beautiful expression of that because they don't want nothing. They don't need nothing. They're just happy to be. You could put a group of any background kids, any na nationality together, and they will play happily. They know nothing. And then they will grow. And it's only... The poison that happens when someone down the line, someone says to them, hey, do you realize that person is this color? Or do you realize that person is? And we start then finding differences and we start looking at those differences and, and, and the narrative gets run to us that we start taking on and believing. And once we adopt that narrative, then that narrative becomes generational because we raise those children and we, we teach those children those values and those concepts and those ideologies, you know. Yeah. Now, I think what was interesting, and, and I'd be interested to get your perception. You know, I have my social media. Um, I post, I hope it comes across a lot of very positive stuff. So it's taken me a very long time to grow the, the small amount that I have, but they're all, they seem to be all good people. There's no clickbait in any of the shit that I put out there. Um, and uh, what I saw with all the people that I follow is a show of solidarity, a an outcry to the injustice that a human being was murdered by someone who the community should be trusting. And it lasted for a moment, and I saw special operations, police, fire, you know, all these people banding side by side of all colors and creeds saying, this is wrong. And then 
within a day, the protests and all that stuff just totally overtook everything. And that positive healing narrative that I saw a flicker of was lost in the white noise of, of all this violence now. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I, I, I see that, exactly that. And what I said, I did something with a, another podcast yesterday, and, and this was my thing. Um, commitment versus convenience. That's the big thing here, James, because you can't, you cannot um, protest for a day, put your, put it on your social media, and then you've done your bit, pat yourself on the back, and you're part of that movement. No, screw you. That's not how that works. Um, there are people just jumping on the bandwagon left and right. And right. You know, if you want to be real about this stuff, and we can go back. You know, I was talking yesterday about. Um, Dr. Luther King, uh, the Montgomery um, bus boycott. I don't know if you know about that. Yeah, Rosa uh, Parks. Exactly, right? So 381 days, they boycotted that. They didn't go on the buses. That wasn't one day. That wasn't one week. It wasn't one month. That was 381 days, right, of constant protest. And, and now we have these people who are protesting because it's convenient because they want some likes on social media, because they have another agenda, because they want to use what has happened for their own gain. And you're a sucker. If you do that, you are a sucker. You're cheap and you're lousy, you know. Be about it, you know. Be be committed to a solution. And the solution is, of course, the commitment. It, it, it works both ways. Um, and you have to be committed. You can't just do it when it suits. And that that is one of the things that great on me. You know, um, that the police or law enforcement have been tarnished as they're all the same. You know, they're all the same. Well, that's a reverse racism. And and people have to be be careful with that because it's OK until the fingers pointed back at you. I don't know if that makes sense to you, James, but there were so many people jumping on this uh, because it's convenient to be to, to post and to black out their screen on Instagram. I had a message sent to me telling me not to look, use the hashtag Black Lives Matter. Can I take it down? And did you? <laughs> Actually, I took it down because they explained why they wanted it taken down. It was something to do with the social media search. But they sent that to me and they, they said, you know, could you take it down because the message gets lost along the way. But when you research that hashtag, Black Lives Matter, I don't know if you know the background behind that. I would ask you to have a look at who set it up and why it was set up. And then you'll understand the narrative behind why some of the black community are now against using that hashtag. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the, that's the thing. So I, I did the, the blackout purely in, in solidarity. It's, it's To me, it would be like putting a lamp, a lamp in a window. That was it. Because I, you know, I see, oh, you know, saying all lives matter is having someone, you know, that has cancer and you're saying, well, all diseases matter. No, that's yeah. bullshit. Saying all lives matter is the same as every single fucking religious doctrine that you all hail as the core of your belief, which is all lives matter is why I became a firefighter paramedic, because all lives matter. That's what I'm talking about, because exactly. I don't I don't look at you and go, oh, I'm not going to give you CPR because you're black or Indian or Muslim or whatever. You know, so that's that's where I hail from. And I also hail from, you know, raising a hand up and saying I also stand side by side with everyone who's opposed to the senseless violence is happening in our country and our world. That's that's to me what the black the the the, you know, the blackout was. But you're right. As soon as people start tearing it apart, analyzing, 
you negate it again, and every extreme that comes in negates the core. Let, let me let me give you a quick quote, James, and this is all checkable. Okay, um, I'm, I'll give you a direct quote from the Black Lives Matter website, which was 2014 stroke 2015, and the quote is as follows: Guiding principles: We are committed to disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. We are committed to embracing and making space for trans brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We are committed to being self-reflexive and doing the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift, uplift black trans folk, especially trans black women. The message starts to get distorted when you really look at stuff and understand that where it came from who was funding it and all the rest of it. Now, I don't want to go into anything political because before I voice any opinion, um, it's this is where people get shot down, right? But why does the Black Lives Matter uh, movement need to explain the trans world when it isn't it, when isn't that the job of the LGBT? Yeah. Well, also, how can you hijack the words Black Lives Matter and say it's only for your agenda as well you know what i mean i got i got some a friend of mine lost his shit because i used the word new normal well to me new normal is my optimistic hope that after this covid you know just craziness that people in the west will look at their fitness habits look at their nutrition look at the the pharmaceutical industry look at smoking and do better and apparently, no, I used that word wrong. New normal is some liberal blah, blah. And I'm like, motherfucker, no. New normal means new normal. So don't tell yeah. me what I fucking meant. You know what I mean? So this and, is the- and, that's, and that's the thing. They, the, the narrative gets hijacked. And then it's made into whatever it is. I had a, an actor friend, quite a famous one, shot down recently and uh, took down his social media platforms because people turned against him. His own friends turned against him because he began a narrative about all lives matter. And I'm in total agreement that yes, we don't have that kind of uh, issue that is happening in, in in the community. But remember, I'm not white, I'm a shade of black. So I'm not black, and I don't claim to be black, and I don't claim to, to know the issues or, or have the issues that they have. But you've only got to listen to some of my podcasts to hear what I'm actually saying. But I do believe education is the right way. I do believe knowing is power. And I do believe that before we can claim something as our own or hijack something of, of our own or or find hidden agendas in, in different things, we have to go to that source and look at that source and understand where it's come from. You know, it isn't just, it's not your hashtag, it's everyone's hashtag. Are you saying I can't stand in solidarity with you and come on these these protests with you? Because I'm 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 not black. Yeah, or transgender. <laughs> or transgender. Right, right. Or, or whichever spin on it people are trying to take from it, and and that was my whole point with people making agendas out of their own who are not committed, who who don't have um, a commitment to this. They're just jumping on just jumping on the bandwagon, and that that is sad, and that's annoying. And and you're a sucker if you do that. You're a bum. Be about that. You know, all year, forever. Don't just do it when it suits. Yeah. Well, and I think that brings us back to the law enforcement side as well. So look at the people who are walking the walk. 
and many of the men and women that you and I stand so, you know proudly side by side with have vowed to risk their lives for complete strangers for 10 20 30 years of their life if that's not saying all lives matter I don't I don't know what is and are there some bad a- apples in there we know there are we Absolutely. see them on the fucking in time but that and, is and a small amount that, James is that we have to and this is where it starts with law enforcement and fire service and LAS and all those other first responders and the military this is where it starts with it starts with standing up within our organization and saying hey that's not acceptable and don't do that around me in fact you shouldn't even be here and reporting that person right that's where it starts that we take that we take responsibility of our own because it never happened on my watch could never happen on my watch and would never happen on my watch i wouldn't ever allow that to happen no one I know, myself included, ever got out of bed in the morning and said, oh, yawned and stretched my arms out and said, okay, today I'm going to go and arrest a black person or a Chinese person or an English person. That never happened. I left that house with my commitment to providing a solution. And that's why I joined law enforcement. I didn't join law enforcement because it was convenient or because they paid well. I joined because I was committed to making a change. I'd been stopped by police. I'd had issues with the police. I knew there were issues happening in my community and I wanted to make that change. I wanted someone to go, hey, not all cops are like that. And I'd arrest people and they'd say to me, hey, you're, you're not like other police because I'd find something to connect with those people with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's it. This is, you know, you're not like other people. Well, no. And you're not like other accountants, I know. You're like not like right. other people that, you know, Safeway checkout. Some of them are nice. Some of them are assholes right <laughs> so there's there's a there's a spectrum of personalities in every profession so so we cannot say all people are the same or you're all the same or it's it's all of you and and that saddens me when like you said for 18 years i put myself at the service of the community i put my my life on the line when i left home i didn't know if i was going back i didn't know if i was returning home in one piece that night I didn't know what was going to face me behind that that call. Every call that came out over that radio could potentially be the last call I attend because I don't know what's behind that door. But I have to respond. I don't have a choice. We don't have the option to to down tools and say, sorry, guys, um, I don't really feel like attending man armed with a knife uh, in a house, hostage situation, firearm situation, someone strapped with explosives to them. We don't have that option, unfortunately, James. No, we just, someone picks up the phone and we, we go. And th- that's if it. that is not selfless, I don't know what is. No, exactly. And then, you know, to, to flip that on his head, just to, you know, paint the other side, there are kids, you know, as, as you know, you've talked about, who despite growing up in poverty, despite having whatever skin color, whatever religion, you know, are doing incredible things in their community, either within police, fire, EMS, or other agencies. So both sides, you know, to, to, to label me is to negate me. You know, the, the, the hate that is bred at the, the, beneath the surface of all this is the, is the true, you know, cancer. And, and the, the men and women on the streets, whether they're wearing uniform, whether they're, you know, on the other side of the law at that moment are, are victims of that that cancerous approach and the more we look at the root whether it's you know how there's even the violence that we see on the streets is making it more dangerous is making more people arrested and put in prison 
that's the you know the really where I think we need to focus. Protect the mm. children that are in these group homes and these foster homes, and you know, as parents, take a step back and ask ourselves: Are we doing as, as well as we can parenting our children? That's how you change the world. But you have to do it at the beginning of that generation and understand that it's going to take time. That's the thing. That's the mission, right? That's how we. That's how we start, and you know. Unfortunately, many, many people will not see it through the eyes of a first responder. They have no idea what we see on a day-to-day basis. Um, my interaction with, with when I was a 999 response officer with stopping vehicles, bearing in mind, I never, ever just stopped a vehicle for the sake of stopping a vehicle. Um, if you're driving in a vehicle and your face is obscured, or your seat position is laid back so far, you can just about see over the wheel, you know, that chilled out kind of driving position, or you see a police car and you make a sharp left and something draws attention to me, I'm gonna come and speak to you. I'm gonna come and find out why that happened. Or on the ANPR, which are on most cars, the automatic number plate reader, you drive by and it flashes up, vehicle has no tax, no insurance, no registered keeper. Or even more sinister, firearms have been noted in this vehicle. Where does that information come from? That isn't directly from me. That's input into a, a, into a computer called the PNC. And that is available to all officers, not just one officer. So then when we stop that vehicle, or when police stop that vehicle, then the justification begins, right? We stop the vehicle. There's an attitude between the cop and the and the... And the civilian inside the car um and when we see it all the time people naturally are aggressive towards police not all but we get it sometimes it happens and i get it too i understand we've stopped you going about your daily business for something that we need to check and you know once that happens once that kind of initial reaction happens when it happens to me i calm the whole thing down i'll do my best to calm it down you know I'll talk to the individual, try to figure out what's going on. I'll give them the reason. Now, if I got stopped by the police, this is where the education comes in. If you know what police can and can't do to you, if you know your rights, not what I call the world star rights, not what I call the YouTube rights, not what I call the Instagram rights, know what we can and can't do. And it's very simple to find out. You can print that stuff off and have a checklist with you. When you know your rights, there is very little police can do to you. Yeah, that's it's interesting as well because when you were talking, I was thinking back. Like I'm, I drive like Miss Daisy. Like I am, an, mm. you know, I drive like an old man. Um, and I have been pulled over numerous times. I've never had a, a ticket or anything, but because every time I've been pulled over, it's one of those situations. If you fix problem X, then you won't get a ticket. So you know your registration is is a month past. Shit, I forgot about that. Okay, I'll, I'll get it fixed. Your you know your tail lights out. All right, I'll go buy a bulb or put it back in. But I've been pulled mm. over numerous times, and I drive incredibly sensibly. The other day, I got pulled over for rolling through a stop sign. I mean, I, I shit you not, it must have been about three miles an hour. I'm not exaggerating, but that person, that you know, that moment, I don't know if it was a, a quota or whatever, they pulled me over, and then and then they asked, "You have a you know a firearm?" I'm like, yes, I have a firearm in the right place and you know in the right situation. Okay, and then they had to wait for another person. But it is what it is, you know. I mean, what? that's that's the way it works. I was polite. I waited, you know, even though you know it it, it really was a an issue where I barely even you know broke zero at that. It doesn't matter. 
I mean, I mean, you have to look at the what is the job of law enforcement? Ultimately, it's to protect life and property uh, and, and have that code of protect, serve uh, and do everything just and do everything right. And I think if you come from a clean hearted intention, you know, if your intentions are clean hearted and you come from the right place, um, it can't be argued with. And if you do it by the numbers, if you do it by how you're meant to do it, by the book. Um, and I mean, there are things that stray outside of that book. Um, and there are situations that just arrive that the book cannot teach you. That's life experience. But I don't stop people, in, uh, or in my time, I'm retired now, but I don't stop people and scream get out of the car while I have them. When I stop them, the usual question is, why are you stopping me? And I justify my actions. This is why I'm stopping you. Yeah. Well, even even with my thing, yeah, I can I can say it was three miles an hour, but the the sign doesn't say three miles an hour. It says stop. Right. So I was yes. still wrong, no matter how I justify it. I was still right. wrong. Right. And, and that's the thing. Like wearing a seatbelt is compulsory. That's the big one. A lot of people fall down on that. You know, you stop them and say, "Why are you not wearing a seatbelt?" Now they may have a medical reason why they're not. So you have to ask the question. It's an offence. Now, I never, ever gave anyone a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt. I would advise them accordingly. And I would give them the benefit of the doubt. But when you stop someone and you're faced immediately with confrontation and violence and all the rest of it, that eludes you to, to two different things there. Like, what's going on? Why, why is that person behaving to, with me like that? And when I asked them, 9% of the time, they've never been stopped by the police but they think all well, cops are bad and we get into a laugh and joke about it at the end and they're like, oh, you're cool and they spud me up and all the rest of it, and, which is cool. I get that. I'm not going to lose no one's life over a seatbelt. Mine, you know, they're not, I'm not going to take them to jail for a seatbelt. Give it a rest. You know, that's discretionary for me. But if you're speeding and you're drunk, then we have an issue. You know, it, it's, it's, it's so cut and shut in those, those situations. It really is. Um, and, and right, you know, you can't be wrong and strong, James. You, if you're right, you're right. If you're wrong, you're wrong. But you have to know your rights. And that's the educational part of it. Yeah. See, I had another issue with my little boy where two separate times he ended up in a psych facility. And, you know, the, they were absolutely wrong. Like both times they were absolutely wrong. But even with that, like I had to just understand that this is a systemic problem. And the two mm. individuals... One, I mean, basically, let's, let's be honest, two of them were both a shitty lack of training and complete disregard for discretion and ended up right. with a 12-year-old being stuck in a psych ward for two or three days. And, you know, to this point, to this day, I'm still addressing that issue. But that's the other thing is there's all this, you know, all these layers behind some of these, especially these gray area, um, you know, body cam is, uh, incidents that we see. It's like, well, how much training had that person had? Had they had jujitsu training? Have they been forced to stay three shifts in a row? You know, have they slept? You know, so, so when you add all these factors together, the, it compounds these problems. So what might to the person being pulled over seem like a non-issue, that other person, you know, you reach for your, in, in your glove compartment to get your driver's license. In their distorted view, they might think you're reaching for a gun, you know, so... There's that element but, but too. That, that is definitely a lack of training. I mean, for me, I, I never let anyone reach anywhere in the car. I always ask them, where is it? Um, where's, your, where's your drive? Oh, it's in that glove compartment. I'll ask my buddy, can you go get that driving license? You know, because I don't want to make those mistakes, James. I'm, I was very, very cautious, very, very meticulous with what I did. And I was always of the mindset that 
I'm not here really to arrest. People think the, the job of the officer is to arrest. It's actually not. It's to keep the peace. You know, it's to actually make sure that we all get home safely, that we all get to said destination safely. That's the job. No one picks up the telephone, calls 999 or 911 and says, hi, officers. I just wanted to say you're doing a great job. Keep doing <laughs> what you're doing. Peace and love. And they put the fuck. No, they call you when 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 shit's gone bad. They call you when it's hit the fan. Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned about your partner. So, in your career in um, in London, did you always ride with two? Um, believe it or not, in Essex, I, I joined the police initially to Essex Police, and initially they had a single man in policy, um, and they had that in the Met for a while too. Um, so I'd always had, um, I'd always been okay, single man. Um, then. Essex is a county, for those listeners who, who don't know about, about the UK, Essex is a county constabulary. Um, the laws out there are very different. There, there are a lot of bylaws, um, a lot of park laws, a lot of green laws, as we call them. But it was it's not a metropolis. So out there, the volume of crime, the way crime was and how crime happened was very different to here. Out there was a lot more burglaries and less street violence and street crime, uh, less drugs, although now there is a lot of uh, cross-border drug drug issues. Um, it, it was very, very kind of basic crime, taking nothing away from that county because it's got a lot worse now. But when I was there, that's how it was. A lot of little villages out there. Uh, and they still had that spirit of everyone knew everyone. So if someone had an issue, everyone would kind of know and, and be there. So when I, although growing up in East London and, and coming from that background that I told you about, when I came to the Met, they were um, very, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They made sure that we patrolled in, a, in double men uh, crews or man and woman, whoever it was. We had a double crew all of the time. Um, so you had a body all of the time. Now, if you can imagine, we wasn't always paired up with seasoned officers. Sometimes we had um, probationers on the team, someone who just come out of training school. And they would look to you to be the educator, to be the advisor. You would be there to oversee, to make sure that they did everything right. And a lot of the time I was paired up with those kind of people. Now, usually people who join the police service do not come from a background of the street. And this is where I talk about... Um, the difference in street cops and regular cops. Most regular cops are from working class backgrounds. Um, you know, they've gone through an educational system and, you know, their parents were probably cops and it's kind of a family thing that they, they grow into. So they've never witnessed violence. They've never witnessed um, the level of violence or the threat of violence or the crime that we witness. And I saw so many officers resign within the first 12 months of being, they, they wasn't even out of probationary service because it was too much for them. So the single man in policy became in, came into the Met, but majority of the time we were uh, double crewed. Right, because that's one of the observations I've made. Again, I'm not law enforcement, but I, at least I get a kind of layman's perspective instead. But some of these issues, and we lost you know multiple police officers in our area here, and they were all on their own when they were murdered. Um, it just seems like it's so much safer and and 
you know, a, a worthwhile investment to have two officers to a vehicle or to a beat um, for the safety of each other. And then also for the safety of whoever they're pulling over, stopping, whatever, because the chance of two grown men and or women restraining a person safely are far greater than one person on their own. Yeah, I mean, it can work both ways. You have to be on the same wavelength with that person. Like, I would always give people a briefing outside of the briefing who work with me. I would tell them what I expected from them, what I wouldn't wouldn't tolerate. Um, And I would always tell them to be impartial and use their judgment over their handcuffs or their baton. Um, That would always be my, my statement to them. And I told them on many occasions, especially the new recruits, that I would not be putting pen to paper and justifying any wrong they did, that they would be putting me in a position and themselves in a position. And ultimately, um, you know, they would be setting themselves up for arrest. And thank God I never, ever, and I can say this wholeheartedly, never, ever witnessed anything of the sort when I was around. Now, I'm not saying that didn't go on. And I'm not crazy enough to think there aren't people like that in, in the police service. Um, but they are being weeded out. They are being um, dealt with. But where I, when I was there on my watch, that never happened. Right. Well, speaking of your career, because we barely even touched on that. We've been talking over an hour now, which <laughs> I knew was going to happen. Um, <laughs> so, so lead me through your career and take me to you know when you started kind of specialising in the teams. Right. So, um, like I said, I was in Essex as a regular PC plod, walking around, taking statements, arresting shoplifters, and and, and then came over to the Met. Once I came over to the Met, um, I joined again a 999 unit, which blew me away. It was a totally different way of policing, totally different style of policing in the metropolis. We would come into work in Essex and have no outstanding I course or emergency course or immediate response course. When I came into the Met, I would come into shift. We wouldn't even have time to brief on the early car and we would be pushed out answering um, I-calls and there would be something like 30 outstanding I-calls on a night duty uh, before our team, our, our shift actually began. Um, so I began in, in the Met as, as, a, as a, a PC. Um, and then I moved into, from, the, from starting as a PC, I moved into uh, level two. Oh, sorry, I, I got a driving course. To get a driving course in the Met is, um, is, is very, very difficult. Uh, a driving course means you can drive the cars on blues and twos. You've probably done this in the LAS or in the, in the paramedics, um, where you can uh, drive around on blue, blue lights and two tones. You have uh, a basic driving skill, a response driving skill, an advanced driving skill, a covert advanced driving skill, skill and a TPAC skill. That would be kind of the whole of your police career on a 999 response unit, although some of those are specialists. And then beyond that, you would have carrier courses where you would be able to ferry large amounts of police officers like riot officers around to, to events. So, so I did that for many years. And then I moved into something called public order units, the level two public order uh, units. And they are deployed to spontaneous or pre-planned public order events, football matches, um, concerts, uh, protests, where the level of violence were were okay and, and you would just be there to support regular officers. The natural progress, progression from that was to move into the TSG, the Territorial Support Group. Do you remember those, James, the riot carrier officers? 
Um, the, yeah, I mean, from the news only, though. Yeah. So, so I moved into the TSG. Uh, operational call sign was uniform, U uniform. Um, and we were commissioners reserves. You were basically specialists from that point on. From that moment that you hit the TSG units, you become a specialist police officer. We would patrol in three carriers, um, 12 PCs, uh, three sergeants and an inspector per per carrier, per serial, as they're called. And we would patrol or be deployed into areas where they would impose something called a Section 60, which is um, where you can stop and search for any reason. If, if there was knife crime had, had risen and there were multiple stabbings or, or there had been uh, information received of mass public disturbance, then you would go on right uh, on uh, public order events like poll tax riots, um, the National Front riots when, when the BNP and the ANL clashed, uh, big football matches like West Ham and Millwall, big rivalries. So spent a fair amount of time there. And then I was um, I joined a, a unit which was a surveillance and counter surveillance unit. And, and that was more about intelligence gathering of, say, drug dealing in estates. Um, uh, what do they call them? Um, it was all of that sort of stuff. It wasn't tier one stuff, but it was along the lines of. So we would follow suspects who, who we believed involved in pretty serious crimes. Um, spent a lot of time doing that. And then I got picked to join uh, SO10, which is the covert operations team. Uh, and I became a test purchasing officer. Um, and that was everything from low level uh, drug, stolen property, um, you know, people selling stolen goods, um, informant handling type stuff. Uh, and then all the way down to, to tier one, which was long-term deep infiltration operations. Um, and, and, and you could be scattered anywhere for those. So, so that's kind of the crux of, of my entry into the, the special operations side of, of policing. After, after that, do you remember the flying, flying, uh, flying squad or the robbery squad, the Sweeney Todd, we used to call them. Yeah. I mean, again, from TV, you remember when I was back in, yeah. back in England, I wasn't a responder at all. So it was more from a, you know, a bystander's perspective. <laughs> right. Um, I joined that for a while. Um, and let's just say that was an eye opener. Um, the hours were from six in the morning till whenever there was no shift patterns until the job was done. That was the motto. And that was a real eye opener in the sense of you with the big boys now. That was the big league. You know, that was if you've ever seen the TV program, the Sweeney, the old sweat DCIs and the DC uh, and the inspectors were exactly like Carter in that, you know, um, kicking the front doors and get them. Uh, there was all that sort of stuff going on and, and people were afraid of them. You know, they, they were involved in the. Um, Oh, what was that called? The jewelry robbery of that diamond over in in uh, in London uh, when everyone got brought down, and and that was that was those were big operations. But majority of my time towards the later end of my career, I spent in SO13, which is counterterrorism uh, and serious crime. Um, and I always say I did it before it came became SO19 and now CTSFOs. That was an unbelievable time in my life. That really showed me the value of human life. That showed me the value of um, working as a team. That showed me um, the power of, of weapons 
you know, weapons of mass destruction, guns, stun guns, grenade, um, tear gas, you name it, you know, it was as close to a special forces operator as you could be um, within the metropolis of London. And, and you know, geared up for all, all kinds of situations. We were specialists in methods of entry, fast rope access skills, um, building entries, prison entries, uh, aircraft entries, uh, hostage rescue, terrorist attack, you name it, James, it was on the menu, you know. Um, and that was an incredible time in my life. And, and that was where I retired from um, at that, you know. So I, I've had a very varied uh, career um, and a very kind of um, well-rounded career. And the Met had invested a lot of money in me. Well, you touched on weapons, so there's, there's, I want to go back, obviously, to, to various points in your career, especially 7-7. Mm. I know we talked about that the other day. Yeah. Um, yeah. But one of the things that's amazing to me, because I'm living in America now, guns everywhere, and I, I have one because right now I think we're stuck in this kind of vicious circle and everyone else has one. So it's kind of like, we, you know, my opinion, I need one because what if, you know, and, and it's not like I walk around with it on my hip the whole time, but I've been in a, you know, what they thought was a school shooting with my son locked in his school, it ended up being a false alarm, but it really opened my eyes to the vulnerability of the unarmed when perpetrators are armed. But yeah. looking retroactively at, at the UK, you know, I, I grew up, well, we don't have guns in England, but then, right, exactly. but then you look back to 30 years before we were born, they were everywhere in England. So it's, yeah. it's fascinating how they got rid of them. But I'll never forget what I think it was literally one of my last days in England before I moved. I was in um, Hampstead of all places in a pub just on the edge of the heath. And a bloke walked in, you know, just I forget exactly what he said, but he very aggressively and he lifted up his arm and there was a gun in the waistband. And I'm like, that is the first time I've ever seen a pistol in, you know, on someone who isn't military or or police, you know, in an airport in England. So that was probably shit, that has to be almost twenty years ago now. What are you seeing as far as guns specifically in the UK? Has it grown again or you have you been able to suppress that that illegal gun ownership? No, it's, de it's definitely gr grown, James. We had a big um situation with um uh, what were they called reconditioned weapons or uh, decommissioned, sorry, decommissioned where they would bore them out and they would rebarrel them and, and all the rest of it, and they would make them live again. And and there's been a, a spate in shootings. There's been a rise in, in shootings. And, and we're not talking small arms. We're talking, you know, Uzis and, and Glocks. And we, we're talking legitimate hardware, you know, uh, people getting, getting taken out in London recently. There were three in Birmingham uh, and a lot of innocent bystanders as well uh, because they're firing indiscriminately. A lot of people, as you know, they, they, they don't learn to shoot. It's the old twist the wrist, point and run and shoot. And you're not going to hit nothing but innocent people doing that. Um, and it's all glamorized in, in TV. And, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. There is definitely a rise. I mean, we've had a huge rise in knife crime. Or have we had a rise or is it just highlighted more by the media? You know, who knows? Who knows? You know, um, but from, from what I see and what I hear, it's definitely on the rise firearms are definitely on the rise here yeah i'm, I'm supposed to be getting on uh, dr martin griffiths and he's a he's a trauma surgeon and really one of the faces of you know the anti-knife crime movement um and he's a trauma surgeon so at the moment i think he's all you know 
caught up in the COVID thing. So I'm going to try and reach out to him again, you know, when this has died down. But yeah, I mean, that's what we see. And 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 again, just like we were talking about, there's this kind of racial tensions at the moment. Again, the underlying thing isn't that you're, you know, of of uh, you know, Muslim descent in Birmingham or Jamaican descent in London. It's the fact that you've grown up in an environment where that gang life is being glorified and, you know, the 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 way that we view drugs the same way in America and England is creating a lot of power and wealth around the drugs. And like you said, I mean, it, is it a gun? Is it a knife? It doesn't matter. It's killing. And that's that's what is so sad seeing the stories from, from the UK is, you know, English men and women killing English men and women. Yeah. And, and at a rate, you know, at a higher, higher rate, at an increased rate. So, um, yeah, that's where we're at with, with, with the kind of firearms at the minute. Um, and I can remember being deployed as a firearms officer. You, you'd get calls and, and you would attend. And 99.9% of the time, it would be a BB gun. It would be a replica but there was always that you know the one or two percent that you would show up and it would be legit. It would be absolutely legit, you know. Um, and 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 that's the thing. That training has to kick in, you know. The respect for human life has to be there. The you have to be present in your head and you have to be aware. And and there's an old saying in the Met, you know, if you point uh, the finger, if you point a gun at the Metropolitan Police Officer. 26,000 people will back him up. 26,000 other Met officers will back him or her up. If you, if the Metropolitan Police Officer, someone points a finger at him or her, he stands alone. And that was never a truer thing. It's never been such a, a true thing, you know? And we're seeing that now yeah. more than ever. Now, what do you think are some of the, the underlying factors that are contributing to the violence on the streets of the UK? James, I think... We have so many cultures here and we have so many people trying to glamorize certain things here and we're it's like it's now fashionable to carry a knife it's become a fashion accessory you know um we don't thank god they don't have access to to firearms like they do in in the us but it literally has become fashionable so contributing factors i'm guessing poverty i'm guessing you know, where they live, making a name. There's, there's all sorts of contributing factors, but the raw factor of it is we're turning our eyes away from it. We're saying we're not doing that to each other. This isn't happening. Um, and we're making excuses for the reasons are that some people are just naturally doing that. They just want that to happen. You know, they just, um, can you imagine arming yourself from home, leaving home right now? I'm going to go out with this knife in my pocket and I'm going to stab someone. That's like saying the cop who wakes up in the morning and goes, oh, I'm going to go out and stop a minority ethnic person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the problem, though, is if, if you just give the the hooligan a knife and if you just give the police officer a gun and neither of, have, of them have any other um, paths to go down, like you said, the, 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 the young man has been mentored so... He's not going to ever use that. Well, that goes back to our social, economic kind of thing. Where's dad at? Where's the fathers at? Where's the real men not standing up and being dads, you know? Where are these lawless, you know, people creating kids and and setting off their own examples? 
you know, where are we in our community? Why are we not helping our community? Why are we not building businesses? You know, why are we not supporting single parents? There's a whole thing to this, I think, James. I think that's a completely, that topic we could go off on a tangent on. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, the thing is, is there's so many pillars to that. And, and if you all say, oh, it's their fault. No, it's their fault. You're not going to get it done. It's the parents right. and the mentors in the community and the teachers but, at but, the schools. But remember what we were saying earlier on about a choice, having a choice. We all have a choice, James. We have that choice. I've been there and had that choice given to me myself. Yeah. I made that choice myself. I could have chose another path. Yeah, exactly. Now, now, what about the drug thing? I saw recently that Britain was considering decriminalization of drugs the same way as Portugal has, which, which I've had the, the man who actually spearheaded Portugal's initiative. They completely reversed addiction in their country. They you know, got rid of so much crime, emptied out the prisons, the court systems, because, you know, the, 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 they took away the power from the underground drug trade. Yeah. What's your, what's your perspective on that? Listen, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I personally have very young children and I try to be the best parent I can to them. Now we have, you know, you could go back to the Coca-Cola days and say, hey, that's a drug, right? Too much of anything can be a drug. Um, as, as long as, or as far as class A, class B, class C, I think they all have social issues to them. I think they all all have their own social issues. If you want to do that, do you know? Do you don't don't involve anyone else. There's no need for that. But when you're, I think the problem is when you're having people sell this stuff to 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 other people and they and they go into schools for people that don't have choices. You know, although they can make a choice, but we have to again. It's an educational process, James. Where where do we stop with it? You know, and where do we start with it? You know, it has to start from questioning. Is is um, Portugal the same as England? No, it's not. You know, is the US the same as England? No, it's not. We are the only we are the only place in Europe that I know of where we police the streets of London with handcuffs, a baton, and and pepper spray. Yeah. No, no firearms. And and the cop deaths here are very very low. So you know, would would that impact that in any way? I don't know. And I don't know enough about about the recreational use of these and how they're used to, to pass comment on that. Yeah, well, I think one of the best perspectives I've had, and I just had him on the show, was Johan Hari, who wrote two amazing books and, and showed how behind, you know, pretty much all addiction is, is mental ill health. So when you, right. you know, and, and then actually the, pro, the prohibition of, of drugs is rooted deeply in racism. If you look at Henry, Henry Anslinger, um, you know the history of it. That's that was basically a hate of uh, you know many of the minority groups. But so now you take addicts, and just like we said, you know, there's a person who's found themselves addicted, started with glue, ended up wherever. Now they have a criminal record. Even mm. if they start making good choices, that is now pushing them down. Versus someone on the exact same path, they find themselves addicted. Now they're funneled through addiction programs. They're viewed as a patient, not a criminal. It's a very, very different path that they follow. So I think that's for me. It's again that human element. Like if this if this came from a horrendous place of hate in the first place, and prohibition of alcohol failed so miserably in America, where we did have gangs murdering each other, and the moment it stopped, they went away. Um, I don't see how 
you know, that model wouldn't work well. And it would be, it's not apples for apples. Of course, you know, countries are different, but they're still, as you pointed out, inhabited by people that entered this earth as, as giggling toddlers before they became whatever member of whatever country. So fundamentally, I think that that, that would be one way of removing the power from the street thugs, the, the dealers, the, the smugglers, you know, definitely reduce the violence on, you know, amongst the community members reduce the violence on police officers and i just don't see how how it would be any worse than what we're seeing at the moment i mean it's such a crazy crazy cycle and i hate to be cliche but we tax tobacco right we tax alcohol we you know we we legally allow that although there are now um warning signs on these things and and the and the the drug community i mean it there's such social problems that come with it you know i wouldn't i'll give you an example there's um a very well-known jiu-jitsu exponent who advocates using weed or cannabis um and advocates that in his jiu-jitsu school but i would not send my children there and be influenced by that they have a choice to make. They don't need influence. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Um, and I think for, for education and guiding them um, and then letting them make their own de- decision and being there to support them if they make a bad decision um, will be much better than them being in an environment when it's the core thing to do or it's the right thing to do because that's peer pressure. And then it leads to other things that they could be in, in, in have an impression imposed upon them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a difference between decriminalizing addiction and putting people in an environment where you're promoting or glorifying exactly. those drugs. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, transitioning then off that subject, but I do appreciate I, I'm really enjoying having these conversations with people, especially people who have, you know, truly been amongst it, you know, like yourself. Um Taking us back then to 7-7, which, you know, was the, the tragic day in London that was you know, the English version of 9-11. Um, I know that you were, you know, stationed, I mean, right on top of it. So tell me about that day. So I remember that quite clearly, 7-7, July, um, warm summer's day. You know King's Cross, right? We spoke about this, the old King's Cross. It's changed now. But right opposite King's Cross was a Burger King. And we were information received. Remember, it's all intelligence-led. Um, these carriers were deployed across London. Police were, you know, high-vis jackets. They were everywhere, buses, places. We were right across from um, King's Cross, stationed right there when the rumble happened. We heard a rumble. Next thing that happened was the ground literally shook. It was a warm summer's day. We were all outside the carrier. Next thing was the there had been Orgate, there had been um, Morgate, I believe, and a bus had detonated all of, all of simultaneous times. It was the first kind of suicide bomber on the streets. The first time we'd encountered suicide bombings on the, on the streets of London. Um, smoke started to come out of the station. Um, people were screaming, shouting, chaos erupted. Um, and we went straight over. As first responders, like I said, we went over there. We were immediately asked over the ta- over the radio, the PR. We were given a set of rules, which were: do not enter that that subway. Do not go into the subway. Now, I'd already taken a few steps in with other colleagues. We got into the subway, 
when we were in that subway, um, I was stepping over body parts. People were moaning. People were groaning. There was a woman that I saw that was had her upper clothing had been blown off by the blast of the bomb. Now, bearing in mind, we didn't know what happened at the time. There was a smell which I could only describe to you as cooking pork, how pork smells when it's burning. It was a horrendous uh, sight. I, did, I went over to this, this man who was laying face down and he was trying to get up off the ground and um, he couldn't get up. There, there was rubble on him and everything. We then began taking people out. Um, of course, being very limited in, in first aid, we're only given very limited training where we have a medic on board with us for really our benefit. I picked this woman up, uh, picked this person up, um, and I, I don't want to kind of say if it's man or woman because obviously people may listen and, and may have a connection to this person, but one of the limbs were missing, uh, James, and you've probably seen this in RTAs and, and all sorts of stuff, but being a police officer, we never thought we would have to deal with that kind of incident. You know, I've been to stations, what we call jumpers, when people have jumped under trains and we have to investigate if they've been pushed, et cetera, et cetera. But this was a mass casualty environment and serious um, environment. Not just limbs missing, but people that had glass impaled in their face and pieces of metal and horrendous um, situation. We started to take these people out and then um, fire officers arrived. And I remember this officer in a, a white helmet run down and say to me, look, you should not be in here. You have to get out. We started taking these people out and then the place filled up with the thickest, blackest smoke that I could, you know, that you could ever see. I couldn't even see my hand in front of my face. And all I was doing was stepping over people. Um, I went in twice, uh, three times before we, we became overwhelmed and we couldn't go in without breathing apparatus and we, we brought people out and then people were coming out. And then a decision was made that we would cordon and we would hold the cordon and only let LAS and anyone who came out, we would triage them. So that was 7-7 for me. That was one of the issues of seven, uh, one of the, the things that happened in 7-7 for me. And I'll live with that experience forever. I can still remember that experience very clearly today. Now, what did the days after that look like? I mean, you know, I remember seeing from from afar from here and when 9-11 happened i was actually in japan living out there and then when 7-7 happened i was i was in the u.s but you know the all i got was the reporting you know and i was very proud of the brits how quickly they just got back to work to you know to kind of rebuke the the impact that the terrorists were hoping to have and it made me very proud to be british but um from behind the scenes what did what did the next few weeks look like after that horrendous bombing so you're right with the British. Um, they have this thing, stiff upper lip. Our government will not yield. You know, we don't yield. The government doesn't yield. We don't take kindly to that kind of thing. Um, and they encouraging everyone to go back to work and all the rest of it. And the next day we saw people going back to work, going about their business. Now, there was elements of fear and anxiety. We'd be on the street and for one of the first times people would come up to us and say, officer, it's really nice to see you on the streets. It's really nice to see you guys here. Um, I feel safer with you here. These were some of the comments we were getting. Now, I did that shift. Um, we ended up staying on for an extra 12 or 13 hours. Um, 
So it was almost like two, a two-day shift. We came off of that shift, <clears throat> and the next day we were expected back in, and then we were deployed again to other stations around London. <clears throat> and it was the same thing, checking in, going into the station, doing the checks, when people were coming in, stopping people, checking their backpacks. And we were completely reliant on that time on intelligence from the community, from society, and, and from the police intel that we had. So the next couple of weeks after that were very nerve-wracking for us because you'd turn up at a site and there'd be panic. You know, people would be calling police and saying, oh, there's a backpack left on a, on a, on a train or an unattended bag in the subway or um, whatever, whatever it was. And you can imagine how many calls we got on that. Yeah, I've talked about this before. I grew up on, on a farm and it literally butted right up against the MOD base. So even as a young kid, when the IRA were blowing up women and children on the mainland, you know, we we had to literally sweep under the car. We, we had the little mirror on the stick and, you know, we would do that yeah. every morning. Um, yeah. So even back then, when there was a, you know, a backpack sitting, it would it would kind of get people a little bit nervous. But um, yeah, the, the, the fact that that went away around, you know, 2000-ish, it seemed like, oh, we could all exhale. And it was so yeah, horrendous I, I to get that back. It went away. I, I just think we became more aware of it. And again, we got desensitized to it because we started to receive international news. We saw, you know, we saw what was happening in Afghanistan. We saw Libya. We saw Syria. You know, we saw everything. And I think we, us as a, as a country were desensitized to the fact that it, it was happening. Now, what about after that? Were you involved in any other attacks that we saw? Um, we, after 7-7 seven, seven, um, bombings in 2005, we, you know, we then went on to, because of the, the areas I worked in within law enforcement, people are unaware that we can be deployed, we can deploy international operations uh, under, under counterterrorism or SO-15, we can deploy officers around the world in response to terrorist incidents uh, to support host countries or uh, where British nationals are victims. I don't know if you're aware of that, James. We, we no. actually do. Yeah, a lot of people aren't aware, but that happens. Um, so for, I'll give you some examples. So remember Judith Tebbett and David Tebbett. David unfortunately died at the hand of, hands of pirates or in, Somalia, in Kenya, sorry. And uh, Judith was taken hostage. Yes, I remember uh, that story. Yeah. Um, so, so officers were deployed out there, um, in, and, and that was 2012. In 2013, we had the Amina hostage, hostage crisis where uh, six UK citizens were killed, you know? Um, and then we had um, September 21, we had the Westgate siege in Nairobi. Again, you know, people are unaware of, of, of our host country, um, what, what kind of deal we have with them. And, you know, we're, whether we're chasing them down and bringing them back if they're absconded or if they're out there, we, they've built networks now with international operations and international police forces where um, murderers are being brought back from. We had a lot of honor killings in the UK in the Muslim community and, and police officers were deployed to arrest and, and bring back um, murderers from Pakistan and, and, and India and places like that where, where they're host countries. Um, so. So yeah, there are there are situations that that we've been deployed and and, and worked in those environments. Amazing. So so you had this you know long career. I mean, you had the, the childhood as well with a lot of trauma. Then you know you had a very very active career. Saw some horrendous stuff. 
Um, what was it like when you transitioned out? Did you did you have any kind of delayed onset of any mental health struggles yourself? Like mm. we see a lot of people. So I remember I left as a as a firearms uh, officer, and I began to develop. Maybe it was always there. Maybe I I just suppressed it. But I began to show signs of uh, post traumatic stress disorder. Um, I. I didn't want to accept it at first and I would kind of shut it out. But when I realized what it was and I didn't, I, I still don't like to label people or, or have people label me. But when I started to realize what it was and realize that in the environment that I'm in, I could cause serious harm. Should, should it go too far? I decided to step down and, um, and retire. Um, and I was offered all kinds of jobs. I was offered a desk job and I was offered all this stuff. But but you know what, James? I'm a street cop. I'm a hands in pockets, you know, chasing villains down the street, bringing the bad guy home kind of guy. Um, sitting in an office would kill me. Um, so I retired and I, I retired because of that. And I was diagnosed um, during my time with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and that was a horrendous time because you had a guy who was young, fit. He was out there taking care of the world, dealing with people's problems and bringing the bad guys home and really trying to make a change within the community, in his community, you know, in the community that, that I'm very passionate about, that I have um, a lot of faith and belief in. Um, and, and I really wanted, wanted to make as much change and as much difference as I could. And, and I hope in my time in I, that I was in there, I did that with, with every encounter that I had. I hope I left a positive encounter. Um, so I retired. And that was one of the hardest things that ever happened to me um, because I've come from a, a family, if you like, you know, the thin blue line. We're all in this together. We all re- recognize the vulnerability of us as humans and people that we're dealing with. And we're here to help. We have a common cause and a common denominator is save life, save property, go home safely. And and after so many years in doing that, once you leave, you kind of left behind. People move on because the job moves on. The job is ever evolving. Um, and a lot of people, when they leave, they take up fishing and all the rest of it. Man, I'm, I've got a lot of life left in me because of fishing. So I started to open a jiu-jitsu business and stuff like that. But the, the post-traumatic stress, I was, I was on all the medications and, and all the rest of it. And I can remember when I left, I got a summary of, um, what do they call it? It's a, um, you know, when you, you complete your job or your time served and they write a, it's like a recommendation from the um, uh, commissioner or one of the commissioners. And it was an A4 piece of paper. And I remember thinking to myself, it was a framed piece of paper. And I remember thinking to myself, 18 years and all I got was an A4 piece of paper. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and, um, but it reads very well. It's a very well read. Um, is it like a citation? I guess the Americans call it. And, and I've received many, many um, commendations during the Met. I have many stories to tell, many glory stories, which is what most of the people want to hear. Although I'm not really into the glory stories, but there are many stories you know, and I still kind of meet people now and they're like, oh, we heard this happen and it's been exaggerated. And when I tell them, they're like, stop playing it down. And, you know, 
but that was it james it was it was post-traumatic stress and i really had to take care of myself at that point before i could take care of others you know yeah well i think it's that's honorable that you not even honorable it's just it's it's great to hear i guess is the right way of saying it that you were able to identify that because there is a point mentally or physically where you know you might that split second decision might cost your life you know one of your your team's life or a member of civilians and yeah. uh, you know sometimes we have to take a step back either temporarily before we go back or full time but the other thing you hit on which i hear so much and now i'm you know 2 years retired myself so i feel it as well is that realization that when you leave you've put all your blood sweat and tears in that that profession for you know decade decade and a half and then the day you walk out a warm body is exactly where you were. Yeah. You're just numbers. You're just numbers. Yeah. You know? And it's not malicious, but it's a, still a stark realization because you know when you drove home, well, I made this difference today. I saved this life, you know, whatever it was. There's a sense of being. There's a purpose of waking up. And not that there isn't now, but there is a real purpose. Like like I said to you, you know, it's not cliche. It's not It's not crap. I, I honestly believed in, you know, making a difference to, you know, commitment to what I decided to do. Um, and not just not just commitment, you know, like active commitment. I'm going to go and be the best cop I can be. If I was a road sweeper, James, I would be the best road sweeper you ever saw in your life. You'd be paying me to come and sweep the roads, right? So that's what I brought to the uh, Metropolitan Police Service. Um, and I don't regret a day of it in, of my life. Any of the good, the bad, the ugly. And there were some bad times, you know. Um, but there were some amazing people in there, some some great first responders, some and some people that I'm still in touch with now. Um, and, and that's incredible, lifelong friends. But you're right, once you leave, it's a number. And, and I think we all accept that um, because I had a friend who retired and he would, old boy, and he, he would keep calling me up saying, hey, what happened today? And, and I could imagine him sitting there with his cup and tea and you know, crumpet and whatever he was eating, listening to me <laughs> tell him about the stories that happened because you've heard of that, that thing, job pissed, right? No. Have you not heard job pissed? Someone who loves the, lives for the job. No, I never heard that phrase before, but, uh, but yeah, I know exactly. Job. Yeah. 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 And that was me. I was that guy, you know? Um, and there were many more in there. You know, we bleed blue. I still bleed blue. Um, I still hold first responders law enforcement in the highest regard because I know what they go through um, and I hope that that they can I hope I've left a little bit of me with any of those officers that I interacted with where they would deal with pe people firmly but fairly and, and use their judgment all of the time and remember that we do have a, a discretion we are we can be this you know we can use discretion at all times not everything has to result in arrest Absolutely. Well, I want to get to, to training law enforcement in just a second. But um, you mentioned that, you know, when you first came out, you struggled. What were some of the things that helped you heal from the, the PTS? I think that what I had, to, listen, I had a couple of things. Um, I had some, I lost, I lost some friends in the job. Um, I lost some friends in international operations. Um, and I was um struggling with something called survivor syndrome i don't know if you you've heard of that yeah um i was i was struggling a little bit with that because on my watch i accounted for everyone i i over i was the overseer i watched over everyone i didn't just watch over myself everyone was watched over whether it be the good guy or the bad guy 
we were all washed over and I took pride in that that thing and I really had to deal with with certain situations where I'd heard someone was deployed and they're not coming back because they made a bad judgment call because the intel was bad because whatever but I knew how meticulous I was that if I was there they would be here now I knew that um, because I know that you know being blasé will get you in a, in a tight spot um, and being complacent could potentially get you killed um, and I, I was very very like that James so so I had to deal with that and that I still have even to to date I still have nightmares or night terrors if you like over certain things that have happened um, to deal with that took a long time and I still think I'm dealing with that to date I still think that I'm dealing with that and that um, it's very difficult. The love of family and friends, the support network that I've built, but most of all the interactions that I'm having through jiu-jitsu, that, that preoccupies a lot of my time before COVID, obviously. Um, and the friends that I've surrounded myself with, lifelong friends, you know, I think that's a big healer for me. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. And you're right, I mean, you know, I think that's a, a kind of myth as well that we're going to, these things are just going to go away. They're not going to go away the same way as if you injure your back and you and you use therapy to to get stronger again. The injury's still there. You've just created that support around it. But yeah, you know, you've got a mental rolodex now that you're going to carry with you to the grave. Yeah, for sure. And listen, I what I've seen, what I've done, what you've seen, what you've done, I wouldn't change it for the world. Because at that moment in time, I believe I needed to be there, or that needed to happen for whatever reason. You know, I was exposed to that. But what I do know is I did my best and you can't do better than your best. No, and I think that's how you do sleep at night. If you know that you trained, if you know you took your job seriously, if you know, as you said, you know, you were compassionate with the people that deserve right. compassion, right. then you can sleep at night. And yes, there's a body in that seat now, but you knew that when you occupied it, you, you know, were hopefully... I wanted to set the standard, you know, we want to set the standard and, and we want to be able to go, hey... I did that and I did it the right way. You know, I did it from a from a real place. You know, I didn't do it for a paycheck. I didn't do it for um, to get a pat on the back. I couldn't care who patted me on the back. I did it because I was committed to that cause um, and, and I wanted solutions and I wanted to to give that solution to those around me. And I wanted to show people that this is how we do things as an example set. And I did that subconsciously. That wasn't ever a decisive move that I made. It kind of just nurtured and grew within what I was doing. Absolutely. Well, I want to hit one more area before we go to some closing questions. I know we've gone way past 90 minutes now. Um, but so you're in a position now where you are able to be, you know, a solution to some of the problems that we've, we've talked about in law enforcement. Um, so tell me about um, training the tactical athletes that you work with, both physically and with jujitsu. The okay, so so I, I'm involved. I have a jujitsu school, which is actually an affiliation school. I'm the with a head uh, with a head school. We have a H, HQ, and we have affiliation schools that come and train under under us for jujitsu. It just so happens we have some of the most talented individuals that either acquire our skills to go and teach them, or or come to our academy and learn with them. So we have trained some UFC fighters like Vaughn Lee, um, 
Terry Brazier from Bellator, Paul Daly I've worked with from Bellator, who was in the UFC, elite, elite athletes. And these guys are elite for a reason. The, the way they train, there are zero mistakes or, or very, very limited rooms for them to make mistakes. And we provide the right training environment for them. Um, and they choose us to do that. We don't go and choose them. They find us and, and they, they house themselves there. And, and we've been very successful in, in doing so because of our training methodology. Not because we're the toughest guys on the planet, not because our guys are superhuman, but because I believe the training methodology and the way we, we teach and train is the right way. We're not their only coaches, but we're specific coaches in that world of grappling or jiu-jitsu, if you like. Um, and that has been a godsend for many reasons, because you get these young, tenacious warriors show up in the academy and they're different. You know, you know them, you, they shine, you see them straight away and they turn up and there's something about them, whether it's the swagger, whether it's the way they are, whether it's the prowess on them, whatever it is, there's something about them and you can see it. And then once they develop and they start shining, you go, wow, like this is incredible. And, and then you see them applying what they've been taught to the letter. And it's mind blowing, James. It's it's a real educational thing for me now. I'm older, but I'm wiser right now. Um, we don't get old. This is what I tell them. We don't get older. We get better. <laughs> and uh, it works well for us, you know. Brilliant. Now, what about with law enforcement in London? Do you get a lot of um, you know police officers yeah, to come do. train with you, or vice versa? Yeah, you train lots. Them? You, you, can, you can imagine, right? We get lots. And I've never been a fan of the Metropolitan Police's techniques, which is called the Metropolitan Police's all pile on technique. That's what I call it. That's when you see one guy on the ground with 20 police officers on him. It's bad press. Someone's going to die. We've seen this recently. Um, someone's going to get injured. There's no communication. And it, it's the public perception of that is bad. And the commission is going to get sued. That's the bottom line. And my thinking, my thought process behind it was, how can I eliminate officers being off work injured? How could I eliminate the, the commissioner being sued? How could I eliminate the public's perception of law enforcement and teach them the right way with control and restraint? And the best form of control and restraint that I know of is Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, well, going back to your first time, so you're back in you know Brazil, if you know, Hoist or one of his brothers or, you know, one of the other students who are of average build were able to well, subdue... Brazilians aren't that big, right? Brazilians no. Are well, some of them are. Big. I've been kicked up by some big ones before. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, generally, I mean, Hoist, like I said, when when, when I met him, I did it face-to-face -face in Ernest Emerson's uh, gym. And yeah, he was basically my size, a tiny bit bigger. But, but yeah, so if they were able to completely nullify a well-versed, you know, Muay Thai practitioner then the proof is in the pudding, you know what I mean? So to me, the goal of every law enforcement officer would be to, you know, to rise through the ranks of jiu-jitsu, to, to, to have a group of men and women that, that didn't have to beat someone with a stick or, or shoot them. Because, you know, apart from when needed, of course, I mean, there's always those moments, but through verbal de-escalation and then physical de-escalation, we're able to securely put someone into custody without hurting themselves or other people. Yeah, absolutely. And making sure that that duty of care, that when you go hands on with someone and they're arrested, that they are arriving at the police station in one piece, that they are OK, that you are OK, that we all go home together. That's the big thing. Yeah, and a total 
total tangent, but it just reminded me when I lifeguarded in Hampstead Heath years and years ago, there was a couple of guys, Nick, I think he became a fireman, and another one, Paul, who used to train at a place, uh, if my memory serves me right, it was London Shoot Fighters. Yeah, Paul and Alexis run that. Alexis Ivans and, uh, sorry, Paul Ivans and Alexis Dimitriadis. Okay, yeah, so that's still going? Yeah, that's still there. Wow, amazing. Yeah, that was the first time I ever heard of MMA as they talked about this shoe fighting thing. I had no idea what they were talking about. And then, then I watched UFC 1, 2, and 3 on, D- on VHS, and then I got it. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. interesting. All right, well, then I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. So you've been so generous with your time. Um, but before I ask about other people's books, tell me about the book that you're writing. Yeah, so so the book I'm writing is... Uh, is called the mission and it sounds very very uh, military or very very police orientated and it it isn't meant to the mission is my life the journey of my life and i've actually written the book with my children in mind as in this is a benchmark this was the point in my life where i felt i could they could reference they could review all of the notes up to that point before I move into phase two of my life, this is kind of where I'm feeling that phase two moving in now. And they could reference that point and have a look and be proud and stand next to that book and say, hey, my dad wrote this. And at that moment in his life, this is where he was. This is what he, he came through. And hopefully not just for my kids, but for anyone really. And it's not a self-help book, although there are component components in there that is. It's more about what we spoke about, James, from a perspective of where I came from, from a real perspective. Now, a lot of people write these books and they're selling out their glory stories. And and listen, there are little bits of that in there. It would be crazy if there wasn't. But that's not what it's about. It's a reference uh, to my life uh, and to my achievements so far. Um, And I just wanted to leave something. It sounds strange. It's like a, what do they call them, a eulogy? Is it? It's like that where we're just trying to leave I'm just trying to leave something for the world to look at and say, hey, that's what he stood for. That's what he died for, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Brilliant. When do you think that'll be out? Listen, it, it mistakenly fell into a publicist's hands <laughs> by mistake. I was asking them to proofread and, and it transpires that her husband is a published publisher and he really wants to publish the book. But. But I'm very skeptical of that. I don't want the best publisher to publish it. I want the right publisher, someone who connects with it, can understand it, understand where I'd like it to go, where it fits in on the bookshelf. Um, And really, it's a dedication to everyone and anyone I've ever interacted with um, and left a positive um, mark with them. I love it. Yeah, like we talked about I'm finishing up mine now and I'm going to go through Amazon just for the same thing. Like The most passionate person about my book is me. And that's the only route that that seems to give me all the decisions, all the, you know, the, the yeah. I mean, just I get to steer where it goes, and you know, I, I'm yeah. asking close friends who I respect hugely to read chapters and all that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I get it completely. If if someone runs with it and you kind of lose control of your passion project, that would be horrendous. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it would just be, be it's like just throwing papers out into the wind. Those who want to read it will. Those who don't, hey, have a great life. You know, it doesn't impact me in any way. Some people are trying to make a living off of it. If it becomes a a, a number one bestseller, great. If it doesn't, great as well. <laughs> it's an achievement that I'm I'm looking for myself. You know, something that I feel I need to put out. 
Yeah, well, that's something I've said a few times, even with this podcast. If it, if it changes one life, if one person gets some something from it and becomes a better police officer or turns their life around or whatever it is, that it was worth it. Absolutely. It was absolutely, absolutely worth it. All right. Well, then other people's books. Um, are there any books that you love to recommend that someone else has written? It can be about what we've talked about today or something completely different. Um, I've, I've, have you read Marcus Aurelius? Have you read that book? Yeah, I haven't, actually. Stoicism? That's, yes, Stoic, I mean, a lot of the jiu-jitsu community, I was talking to this about someone recently, they're, they're into that. Um, uh, they're into that that kind of reading. Um Ralph Waldo Emerson, I guess, is another one. Self-Reliance, uh, I'd recommend that. Tribes by um, Seth Godin. Um, there, there's, so, there's so many. Deep Work, um, that was by a guy called Cal Newport. Um, they all have, uh, they all have, um, they're, all, they're all kind of kindred books. And, and one of my favorites of all of them is um, by Joseph Campbell, which is The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, and that kind of refers to law enforcement, first responders to, for, for me, because we are all heroes and we all have a thousand different faces. But we all have, I, I mean, the quote I like to use all the time is many in body, one in mind, you know. And I think if you're a true, true first responder, no matter which first response, responder you, uh, background you are, then that is an amazing, that kind of sums up who we are, that we are many in body and, and, and one in mind, you know. Absolutely. I love that. That's funny. The Joseph Campbell book is sitting on my bookshelf waiting to be read at the moment. So Yeah, grab that book and have a read of it. Yeah, I will. If I stop getting guests that have their own books on too, <laughs> I have to read theirs first. <laughs> I've read more the last two or three years than I have in the rest of my life combined, So, which is a great thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. So then what about movies, films? Any any films you like? Um I'm, I have to be honest with you, uh, James. I don't watch movies that much, and I, you know, I don't watch TV shows. And I'm embarrassed to say, but I'm too busy reading. I'm too busy focusing on on other things, and and that's the truth, you know. Um, I'm, I'm always trying to, like I said, I'm, I, I didn't wake up today the same person I was yesterday. Um, I'm always looking at self in, in, in betterment and, and trying to be progressive in in what way I can, and what little time I get to watch stuff. Is usually my kids pulling me to watch something on on a on a, on a laptop or on a TV or something they want to show me. Brilliant! No, there's nothing to be embarrassed with that. That's amazing. That reading or documentaries. I mean, there's so many ways of getting good information. Yeah, um, for sure, and the right information. You know, we we have to be very careful with what sources of information we are calling reliable. Yes, especially over here with our mainstream. I yeah, mean, it's the, you know they're they're just throwing gas on the fire at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Brilliant. All right. So the next question: What do you do to decompress these days? What do I do to decompress? Jujitsu. That's the best thing in my life at the moment. To go hang out with my friends, train for a few hours, forget about the um, the struggles in life, forget about the bills, forget about everything else, and just be on the mats with other sources of energy that are positive and pure and, and just duke it out in a friendly way with a smile on our face. Brilliant. Actually, there was one question I meant to ask you. Um, so 
I know back home, obviously, there's there's a lot more clothes worn. That sounds like a bizarre thing to say, but you know, in England, most of the year we're still wearing jeans, maybe even a jacket. Where I live now in Florida, I literally walk around in boiler shorts and have to put on a t-shirt when I walk out with my daughter going in public. Um, Amazing. When when you train, what are your philosophies of gi versus no gi? Not from a competition standpoint, but from a regular self-defense standpoint. I think if you teach self-defense I'm, I'm very black and white in this area if you teach sport jiu-jitsu versus self-defense which is the the age-old argument i think if you teach jiu-jitsu in its entirety it makes no difference if you're wearing the gi or no gi we are not a slave to the cloth there are five components of jiu-jitsu five of them striking clinching takedowns throwing and then finally ground grappling and ground grappling being the final part of of the confrontation of the self-defense you don't want to be on the ground with anyone in the street or multiple attackers or whatever that is. Um, so if you're not teaching your students all of those components, then you're missing a trick. And then accompanying all of those opponents is the mindset, is the self-defense mindset. And then you can also move into the health defense stuff, you know, washing your hands, your dietary needs, um, you know, staying in shape. Um, uh, health defense also covers uh, mental, mental defense, what we think, what we process, what we let manifest in our brain and what we outwardly express, you know, so there, there's a much bigger picture of jujitsu than, than formats and guys rolling on the floor. Love that. Love that answer. I know Hoist is very big on the on jujitsu being an entire lifestyle, the way they eat, you know, everything. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so then if people want to reach out to you, if you want to learn more about you or, or find the school or the online platform, what's the best place for them to go? Now it's uh, humble bragging time, right? <laughs> <laughs> Please, brag away. <laughs> so everything with me is uh, very simple. It's uh, at EKBJJ on Instagram and Twitter. If people still use Twitter, uh, my kids think I'm living in the dark ages. And in um my website is uh, ekbjj.com or ekbjjonline.com, which is our online resource for, uh, we do have a section on there for first responders as well, law enforcement. Brilliant. All right, well, Eddie, I am so glad that we connected. Um, to get your perspective, not only your early life, but then you know all the different roles that you played within the UK police force and then get your perspectives of obviously what's happening each side of the Atlantic and you know the the physical health side the mental health side this has been such a fantastic conversation and I thank you so much for taking so long to sit down with me and really kind of tell your story and listen I appreciate you giving me this uh, this space on your podcast it's an amazing podcast I've had a had a look over it um and I'm surprised we didn't connect earlier James it was uh, it was very strange that we connected a little later but um I've been following you for a while on Instagram and, and been supportive of your work. So if I could say anything, keep doing what you're doing because you're adding to the positivity needed for first responders, especially in this time where the finger is being pointed at so many of us for individuals' uh, mistakes. Mm -hmm.